Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will be looking at Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And that's where we will stop today, and we'll see if we can get through all of that. We have been looking at this idea that it is vital that we as the church live in unity. We saw, first of all, from verse 1, a command that really should govern our lives, which is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Once we're saved, we're called to a life of faith, and that life of faith is manifest in unity in the church. And so we saw, secondly, our life in the church should bear certain characteristics. What do those characteristics add up to? Well, they add up to unity, and it starts with humility, then it's followed by gentleness, then patience, then bearing with one another in love, and that all results in this eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There it is right there in verse 3. Now, as we wrap up this section in verses 4, 5, and 6, we see that the church family is built on unity. The first thing that I want to draw our attention to is that there is definitely an emphasis on the word one in this passage. There is one body, there it is the first time, one spirit, there it is the second time, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, there it is the third time, verse five, one Lord, four, one faith, five, one baptism, six, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's seven times from verses four to six. Now, I'm not one that gets into, you know, specific, you know, all the numerology of the scriptures. There are some people that add up the value of the numbers and all that's so weird and random to me. I honestly will say a lot of people who do that, you know, they'll do that according to English words and then they'll make, you know, cognates of the words that fit their exact thing so they can find a, a special hidden decoded message. Um, yeah, I, I don't get into that because A, the scriptures weren't given to us in English and then you can't just find, you know, any, you know, use any cognate or any form of a verb, you know, and shorten it or lengthen it depending on what you want to do or add a prefix or whatever uh, just to make it fit, you know, your agenda. So we don't do that. But I will say that there are certain words that are assigned value throughout the scripture. Yeah, we know, for instance, in the book of Revelation, that the number of man is six. (laughs) And we know that because the scripture says that. Uh, We also seem to see this pattern emerge throughout the entirety of scriptures that God's number, uh, the number not of man, but of God is the number seven and seven is the number of completion. So it's interesting here because yeah, one is translated into English, but that word for one, there is a Greek equivalent to that. And that is also found seven times in this passage. So it's, it's just something to note. There's no theological implication for that. And there's nothing that we should uh, make 
you know, a big deal of, but the fact is, is when we're talking about unity and this oneness comes up over and over, which is a way to talk about unity, we see that it's done so many times that it, it forms a complete unit. And so that's all we need to say necessarily about the number. But one of the other things that it tells us is that unity, one, as we keep coming back to it, is actually built around doctrine. So here's a really interesting point that is, you know, we're getting deep into the weeds and we spent three episodes just talking on this one uh, section here. But when we're going to have unity and we call for unity in the church, it's going to have to be defined doctrinally. And there's a disturbing movement in the world today of evangelicalism and within the ecumenical world. When I talk about ecumenism, we're talking about people of all religions coming together and they're trying to find the lowest common denominator, that which we all share and say, okay, let's just put everything else aside. And if we can all agree on this, then that's good. And then I've run into believers, you know, Christians who say uh, the church shouldn't disagree and we shouldn't have all these denominations and all these different things. We should all just be one. Well, in a perfect world, that would be the case, but we live in a fallen world. And because people make decisions about what the Bible says and they're making doctrinal decisions, theological decisions, now we have to go and weigh those against Scripture and we have to decide what is the rubric through which we're going to process the Scriptures. We've talked about that before, our hermeneutic. How is it that we look at the Scriptures and can determine the meaning? Or can we? I believe that we can. We've talked about that elsewhere, but that's what's in view here. And so as we look at the scriptures and we say, okay, the scriptures have one meaning, uh, the univocal nature of scripture, as it's sometimes called, it has one meaning, uh, limitless application. So there's lots of applications, but it means one thing, right? When Jesus said, for instance, I love going to this verse for an example, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the father except through me. What does that mean? Now, I would say that it cannot mean a whole host of different things where you have a group of people, let's say there's eight different people, and then you go around the circle and you get eight different responses. Well, to me, this means this. To me, this means this and so forth. That's not how you determine the meaning of scripture, nor does it mean that no one can ever know. Okay. Words have meaning. And so what we have to do is we have to say, okay, if Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and we understand that all three of those things are talking about the same thing, and then he makes this very specific statement that no man, and we're not just talking about gender here, we're talking about humankind, so no person can come to the Father except through me, what is he saying? He's saying that there is salvation and no one else right? (laughs) Go back to uh, Acts chapter four, there's salvation and no other for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He's saying, listen, I am the exclusive way to the father. And that necessarily limits things. Can you get to the father through Muhammad? And the answer to that is no, I'm sorry. It's, it's just, it's not. And actually I'm not sorry. Okay. Uh, but, but you can't get to the father through Muhammad. Can you get to the father through Buddha? No. Can you get to the father through, uh, environmentalism and through secularism and 
you know, is it true that we're all on this mountain and we're all trying to get to the top and everybody's on their different path and at the end of the day, we all end up on the mountain? No, that's not true. It's a terrible analogy. That's not scripture, by the way. Uh, So I don't know who's telling you that or how good of a storyteller they are when they tell you that, but you shouldn't be persuaded by that. The fact is, is we're all standing on the precipice, okay? And below this precipice, below us, is, uh, you know, a fire that's burning, raging hot. It'll never go out. And to fall in, in over that precipice and into that fire is certain torture and death. And if that weren't bad enough, uh, we are going to get shoved off of that platform, at, that precipice at some point, because there is a wall advancing towards us that is making us make a decision. So we're not on a mountain. And at the end of life, you're either going to get shoved off of that ledge into the fires below that burn eternally. Okay. So I'm trying to use an example of, of scripture here, or the only way to find safety is to find this narrow bridge. And it is very narrow. It is not wide. It is the scripture in Matthew chapter seven calls it a narrow path, not a super highway. And there are very few that are on that. That narrow path, ladies and gentlemen, is Jesus Christ. When he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, he is that person. You want to find a way off of that precipice, and you're getting pushed off of that precipice, and you will either fall to your own eternal torture and death and pay for your own sins of your own, uh, with your own works and by yourself, or you can have the blood of Christ doing that for you. And so the only way that you can do that is to go through Christ. That is a limiting statement. That means that there is no salvation in Buddha. There is no salvation in Muhammad. There is no salvation in uh, you know, Krishna or you know, the Eastern religions, any of that. Those don't offer salvation. They're false religions. They're false gods. They're little G gods that are machinations. They're, you know, they're the product of man's imagination. Now, I don't mean to go off on a wild tangent here, but when we say that unity must involve doctrine, it has to, because we have to be able to make certain statements about Christ, about the scriptures, about everything that's related to our life as Christians And then we can say, okay, we agree on these things, therefore we can be unified. And if you reject these things, we don't have unity, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to compromise and throw it away because we have to, we have to respond to that. Okay. So what are the things that we have to be unified? Well, first of all, we have to agree that there's one body in Christ. This takes us back to Ephesians 2. And so when he talks about, you know, one person, one man being made out of the two, we go back to that. There's one body in Christ. Okay. So that's, that's pretty self-explanatory. Then he says, there's one spirit of God. This means that the spirit of God, the third person of the triunity is over the entire church. That's church universal. But it also means that people don't experience a different spirit. Okay, there, there is no different spirit for a different church. And some people have more of the spirit and some people have less. It's not that. It's the same spirit. And by the way, because God is unchanging, the things that we say about him as far as his incommunicable attributes, we can say about all three persons of the Trinity. That means that when we talk about the, the third person of the triunity, the Holy Spirit, he doesn't change either. 
So the Holy Spirit's not fickle. The Holy Spirit is not different to you because you have a different relationship to him than he is to me or to somebody else. The Holy Spirit is the same spirit over the church. There is one spirit. There are not many spirits and they work different ways in different churches, right? So there's one body, there's one spirit, and there's one hope. Now, the hope here is associated with the call that we talked about earlier. This call, first of all, is manifest in the call to salvation. It's a call to repentance. Remember the message of John the Baptist and the message that Jesus took up from John the Baptist. They were identical. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we are called to repentance, and a call to repentance is a call to faith. It's a call to say, okay, I acknowledge that I have sinned, and I need forgiveness of sin, and the only person who can forgive me of sin is not myself, it's not somebody else, it's God. And the only way that God can forgive my sin is through Jesus Christ. So a call to repentance is a call to salvation. A call to salvation is a call to faith, and it's a call to believe on the Lord Jesus. And so you have this one hope that belongs to your call, the scriptures say. So it is associated with that call. And to be saved is now to be saved to a life of faith. The life of faith then is a life of sanctification where we're growing in Christ likeness. We're helping others grow in their Christ likeness. God is transforming us into the image of Christ. We'll never fully arrive on this side of heaven. And then one day when he calls us to glory, then we shall see him as he is. And it's, it's amazing. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Now, what we should say here with this call is that, remember, this call is a call to not only salvation, but it is a call to be a part of this body, which says what? That you are not called to be an isolated Christian. Right here in this verse, in verse 4, where it says that there is one body, There is no room for the lone wolf Christian. Jesus Christ did not come to build individual Christians. He came to build his church, and his church is made up of Christians. But you need to belong to the church, and we're not talking the church universal. It is the local manifestation. It is the church assembled, the church gathered. There is one body. And when the body gathers, the local body gathers, and we do that dutifully, then we are obeying the call that has been placed on our life. So there's one hope, and this hope is echoed by the community of Christ, and it's manifest in the church. And this call is issued by the Lord, and it's the same for all believers. And that's where we get into in verse 5 and verse 6, okay? So this hope that belongs to your call, the ESV has a dash there and it's, it's almost like it's saying, okay, we're, we're going to, we're going to define this for you. The hope that belongs to your call. What is your call? Well, this is what it is. It's renaming it for us. The call is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who's over all and through all and in all. Okay. That hope is the same for all believers. And so again, when we get to this idea that the church family is built on unity, this unity is doctrinal unity. And so we say there's one Lord. We talked about that exclusivism when we gave that hermeneutical example of John 14, 6. 
There's one Lord. There's not two Lords. There's not any number of Lords. There's not an infinite uh, variety of Lords that all lead us to that one place. There is one Lord. There is one faith. Only one faith will save you. If If you are a true Christian, you believe the same thing. I've had the chance, and I get that not everybody has, but God providentially has allowed me uh, earlier, you know, 20 years ago, as I was serving active duty in the, in the army to travel abroad quite a bit. I was stationed in Europe and my job with the army took me all over. I got to go to many, many different countries. And when I had time, I would seek out churches. Sometimes I wouldn't even be able to really understand the language, but I'd find a missionary or something and I'd go there and they weren't even preaching in English, but they spoke English, but they're speaking in a foreign language. And I would get some help. Somebody in the service might be able to translate for me. But you know what? When they were preaching and somebody was helping me to understand, you know, they weren't preaching a different Lord. They weren't preaching a different faith. They weren't preaching anything different. They're preaching the same thing. So it doesn't matter if there's a cultural difference. It doesn't matter if there's a language difference. The gospel is the same. Our faith is the same. It doesn't change. And so it really shouldn't change person to person here in the U.S. or, you know, any other English-speaking country. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And by the way, the baptism there, I believe, is talking about the baptism of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit does. The thing that's unique about this age, the church age, is that the, the Spirit baptizes believers into the church at the moment of salvation. That is Spirit baptism. Yes, there is Spirit baptism. I'm not going to say there's not, but I think it's grossly misunderstood. And so here in this verse, one baptism is referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He places you into the church at the moment of salvation. Now, that's the church universal. And because he saved you and you are powerless to save yourself, right, then you don't get to unsave yourself. And so you are placed into this body with other believers. And that is the Spirit's work. That's what he does. And then it says there's one God and Father of all. He doesn't change. He's not different. He's the God over everyone who is over all and through all and in all. So these uh, prepositions here uh, of all who's over all, uh, speaking of authority, but through all, uh, he's the one that has the power through that. It speaks to Christ holding everything together uh, and in all. Uh, he's everywhere. He's all around this. This entire organization of the church is God's doing, and he's the one that holds it together. He's the one that powers it. He's the one that guides it. He's the one that calls you to it. He's the one that places you in it. He's the one that protects it. He's the one that does all of that. It is his doing. It's his work. And so it's really encouraging for us to think through all of those things. Because we are called to unity in the church, but unity is not possible apart from doctrine. In fact, true unity is only possible because of right doctrine. So be encouraged, okay? Don't don't buy into this deceptive thought that says unity must come at all costs, and that means that sometimes the cost is very high, and that means that we must compromise doctrine. Absolutely not. Jump back to this passage here and recognize that true unity, true unity is built on doctrine. And so 
It's a very strong admonition and it's a great encouragement to the believer. And I want to encourage you today that you need to hang on to that and to strive for doctrinal unity within the church. And God has called us to that. God has gifted us for that. God has enabled us to have that. And so we need to keep that at the forefront of our minds. The things that we need to agree on, maybe it's not on the color of the carpet or, you know, the chairs in the auditorium or all those things. And and I think those are petty things. Okay. Uh, There's a time and a place to have those discussions. But what we do need to agree on, we need to agree on the fundamentals of the faith. And that's what he has called us to. We'll leave this there and we'll pick it up in the next section uh, in our next episode. This has been another podcast of expositional excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.